Good morning, Bethel. We're going to call a quick audible here. So any of you that are involved in music, we're going to end with that song that we just sang rather than the one that's on the bulletin. So we're going to end with All I Have is Christ. Um, One other announcement that I want to make before we dive into our um, study in Luke 18 is an update on the associate pastor search and specifically um, where we're at with Steve Janho. So um, we had some conversation with him through the summer. He and his family were in the area at the beginning of August. Um, So we were able to kind of um, benefit from that trip and have his family here um, in early August. And then um, after some more processing, we decided to bring Steve out. He was here the weekend before um, Thanksgiving. And then the elders had a conference call the next night on Monday, and we decided unanimously to ask him to come back for a candidating weekend, which would kind of be like the end of the process, um, at least on our end. Um, And so Steve and Deb then took some time to pray about that um, and wrestle through whether or not they wanted to take that final step, which wouldn't have been a foregone conclusion, but a pretty serious step to say this is where we seem to think the Lord is leading us. Um, So Steve got back to me this week, and um, he and Deb are not at peace um, moving forward. And so we are going to kind of move forward in, uh, you know, without Steve as we continue to search. So just wanted to bring that information to you. Um, I know that, uh, you know, it was a, I guess we could explain it a lot of different ways, Um, It was a good weekend, but I'm just glad that the Lord has answered our prayers uh, for clarity. Um, I'm certainly at peace. I think we as elders are at peace. There's other things that that we have probably to discuss as far as how we proceed from here. If there's any ways we tweak um, what we're looking for and what would be best, we want to continue to be sensitive to the Spirit and guided by God in that process. So continue to pray for us. God's got it all in control. His timing is perfect. He's going to provide the right man at the right time um, for our body. And so um, it's a good thing. We can trust him for that. So just wanted to update you on that in case you were wondering. Okay, um, so Luke 18. We are going to be looking at verses 18 to 30 this morning. And I want to begin by reading a little, uh, little story I read this biography. It's probably one of the longest biographies I've ever read on uh, George Whitfield, um, 18th century evangelist, part of the uh, significant catalyst in the First Great Awakening. Um, and he once lodged at the house of a Mr. Thomas Fanning. Mr. Fanning was, quote, possessed of an abundance of the good things of this life, but according to Whitfield, was destitute of that which is to be preferred before all things. Kind of like the people that Revelation 3, in Revelation 3 that Jay read, um, they thought they were rich, but they were really poor. So um, in the biography, it says this, in the morning, as he was lodging at this house, in the morning, Mr. Whitfield arose, and before he left the room in which he had lodged, he wrote with a diamond on the pane. I'm assuming there's some jewelry sitting on the you know, dresser or something. I don't know where he got this diamond. Um, He wrote with a diamond on the pane of glass these important words. One thing is needful. Then it says, Since that time, the house has been occupied by a number of different occupants. It has several times been repaired. Nearly every pane of glass has been broken. Yet this distinguished one remains entire to this day namely when this was written, being a period of more than 60 years. So, you know where that line comes from? One thing is needful. It's in Luke. Hint. (laughs) We looked at it a while ago in chapter 10. You remember? Mary and Martha. The Lord answered and said to Martha, 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 you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. And in our text this morning, 
we're also going to hear about the one thing that this rich ruler lacked. And I think there's some intersection between the one thing back in Luke 10 and the one thing here in Luke 18. Um, So let's pray and ask for God's help and grace as we open his word together. Um, And then we will uh, read our text and walk through it. Father, we thank you that if we are in Christ this morning, that we do have Christ. And there is no greater treasure than to have you. I pray that, that even if all that we have is Christ, I pray that we would see that we are infinitely wealthy and that we have all things and we lack no good thing. No good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. With you as our shepherd, we shall not be in want. And blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, please shape us by the values of your kingdom. Show us what is truly valuable. Open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus that Jay prayed about earlier, that though he was infinitely rich at your right hand in heaven, he willingly impoverished himself and laid it all aside and became a peasant carpenter in our skin, flesh and blood, became a slave even to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we who are infinitely poor, not merely because we're creatures, but because we are debtors, we, are, we have amassed an infinite debt of sin that we cannot pay. And he died so that his riches could be, uh, become ours so that our poverty could be transferred to him. And I pray that that gospel would become more precious to us today as we consider it. So, Lord, please open our eyes, teach us, soften our hearts, help us to receive your word humbly today. Where we may be tempted or we may be giving in to try to worship two masters, to try to straddle two kingdoms, Show us, remind us that we cannot serve God and money. And I pray that we would see that it is way too costly to even try to do that. It is such a dangerous path and there's so much loss even if we were to gain the whole world. So Lord, we come to you. You are our king. You are our treasure. You are our master. And yet our hearts are inclined to wander off to other treasures and other masters. And we pray that you would pull us back onto the path and strengthen us to follow after Jesus with whole hearts, with single minds. That we would love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves all to your glory, all that we might conduct ourselves in a manner that just shouts out the worth of Christ and the worth of the gospel. And so it's for his sake and in his name that we pray. Amen. So Luke 18, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find um, our passage on page, 10, page 1046, I'll read verses 18 to 30. A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So, a little reminder of the context here. Um, a little bit earlier, you have the Pharisee and the tax collector. This Pharisee that would seem to be um, righteous, this moral example, and then the tax collector who everyone just thought was such an unsavory fellow. And this Pharisee says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. And this tax collector just realizes he is utterly helpless and needy. He has no recourse except the mercy of God. He is a sinner and he is greatly in need of mercy. He beats his breast. He can't even raise his head to heaven, his eyes to heaven, stands far off. God have mercy on me, a sinner. The one who went home justified was not the one who looked externally righteous, but the other one who was humble and recognized his need. And Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then last week we looked at this thing with the babies and the children. Look at it again. They were bringing even their babies to Jesus so that he would touch them, bless them. When the disciples saw it, they were rebuking them. He doesn't have time for this. I mean, look, there's this guy waiting in the wings, this rich ruler. He doesn't have time for babies and children. But Jesus said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Helpless, dependent ones, ones that are not self-sufficient, ones that have nothing but open hands because they can only receive. They know that they are only receivers, the humble ones. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. And then you have this negative example, this ruler who comes and says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get in? Okay, so you can imagine why a guy like this would be interested in Jesus' answer to the question. He's emphasized that the kingdom belongs to such as little children and babies, those who are helpless, humble, and receivers only. So what about this wealthy, powerful person? What does a person like that need to do to inherit eternal life? You know, how do you interpret the tone of this guy's question? And it can go, you can imagine how it could go a couple different directions, right? It could be this humble, good teacher, how, how must I, or maybe pompously, good teacher, which is it? Well, at least we know a little bit from the way that Jesus answers. Okay? Look at verse 19. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. So if you were there and you were impressed by this ruler, okay, thinking, oh, look, he's going to be on our team. This is great. <laughs> you would have cringed right off the bat. Jesus, why do you call me good? <laughs> You'd have cringed at that. 
Basically, Jesus is calling this man out on his empty flattery. Why do you call me good? Jesus' approval is not up for sale. It's not drawn out by flattery or by any sort of manipulation, whether it's subtle or direct. Okay, so Jesus says no one is good except God alone. Now this sounds almost like he's denying his divinity, right? Well, Leon Morris is a commentator, and he addresses this concern really well when he writes this. He says, no one is good but God alone is not to be understood as a repudiation of the epithet good as applied to himself. If that was his meaning, Jesus would surely have said plainly that he was a sinner. Rather, he was inviting the ruler to reflect on the meaning of his own words. What he has just said had implications for the person of Jesus. If he was good, and if only God was good, as all rabbinic teachers agreed, then the ruler was saying something important about him. So, far from repudiating the deity of Jesus as some hold, the question seems to invite the young man to reflect on it. Okay, nobody actually referred to a rabbi as good teacher back then, apparently. So this was a unique thing to say. And really, Jesus is calling him out. It's flattery, but it's used nonetheless for him to reflect on, do you know what you're saying? And do you really mean what you're saying? So Jesus deflects the flattery and causes the guy to think, and then he answers the man's question with the law, a purposefully selected portion of the Ten Commandments, okay? Have you ever heard the categorization of the two tables of the law, the first table, the second table? Ever heard of this before? It's pretty simple. Basically, the first table refers to the first four commandments, okay, that have primarily to do with love for God, its expression. And then the second table commands five through ten, those last six, that have primarily to do with loving your neighbor as yourself, Okay? Ten Commandments are obviously just unpacking the great or the greatest commandments. When Jesus was asked, what are they? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what everything hangs on. That's what everything is summed up in. And the Ten Commandments are just unpacking those two. So Jesus responds by giving this guy the second table minus one. Did you notice? He left one out. Hmm, which one did he leave out? Covetousness, the the 10th one. I think the absence should be conspicuous, okay? Maybe it's a setup for understanding. Maybe it's a pointer. Have, have Have you ever noticed that Paul in Colossians equates covetousness and idolatry? Colossians 3, 5 says this, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed or covetousness. And then he says, which is idolatry? Greed or covetousness is idolatry. In other words, when you break the 10th commandment, you've broken the first commandment. Because covetousness is idolatry. You've got something else, some other God before God. Jesus has already warned his hearers about this back in Luke chapter 12. He said, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed or covetousness. Same word. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Okay? So this man thinks he's kept the law, but he's not kept his heart from greed or covetousness. This man is blind to his lawless heart. Okay, so Jesus goes right to the heart of things with him and kind of pulls back the curtain with where he goes from here. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, this response, I've kept all these things from my youth, Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. One thing you still lack. What do you think that one thing is? It's kind of a tough question to answer. I mean, then it seems like Jesus gives him several things to go do. Sell everything, distribute it to the poor, come follow me. Do you remember the man's original question? Don't lose sight of that. What must I do 
to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers that question by saying, one thing you lack. What must I do? One thing you lack. And then he does say several things to do. I think Jesus is very careful with his words here. Okay? He doesn't simply give him a longer list of things to do, even though he does give him some things to do. Jesus is not saying here, here's one more thing you must do. He doesn't say that. He says that he lacks one thing. And it's the one thing he must have to inherit eternal life. So this guy who has everything is lacking something. He's the one who would lack for nothing. He's extremely rich, right? We find out later. And he's lacking something here. One thing without which all of his apparent obedience to select commandments is actually worthless. What do you think that one thing is? I think the one thing is faith. Okay, I'll defend that in a minute. And yet, do you think if Jesus would have said, well, you must believe, this guy probably would have said, I do believe. Is there anything else I need to do? So Jesus follows up his you lack one thing statement with a test to expose his unbelief. Okay, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, then come follow me. Now, what does this mean for us? Do we all have to sell all our possessions? Let me ask it this way. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well and he said, go get your husband. Do we all need to go get our husband? Okay. So this is a specific command to a specific person for a specific reason, and so we dare not universalize it. And yet, go call your husband is similar in that in both cases, Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue, yes, but this is a little bit different because there are other commands in Luke's gospel, Luke's account, that are normative, that this command actually recalls to mind. So back in chapter 14, when Jesus is urging anyone who would call him or herself a disciple to count the cost, remember that back in 14? He said this, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You must renounce ownership of all your possessions. Does that mean you divest yourself of all your possessions? Not necessarily. It just means there's a new master. There's a new ruler. There's a new owner. You're recognizing God as the owner of all things and all your quote-unquote things. So what was true for the rich ruler is true for us. You'll only have what you need when you renounce rights and ownership of what you have. Or think about the sympathetic vibrations, maybe hear the sympathetic vibrations with Luke 17, 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it, right? So this guy needed to die to his possessions that ruled him. Okay, so these are just other ways to say the same thing that Jesus says to this Man, they're all implicit calls to faith. Do you trust me? Do you believe me? So, I think the one thing this man lacked was true faith. Jesus said that he only lacked one thing. But to this guy, this one thing seemed an impossibly heavy burden. Or at least the commands that followed that statement seemed like an impossibly heavy burden. Look how he responded in verse 23. Is this, is this bad news? what Jesus is telling him to go do. But when this man had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So is Jesus giving him an anti-gospel? You know, gospel means good news. Is this bad news? That Jesus would say, this is what you need to do, and the guy just, oh, that's just, that's, oh, that's bad news. He was sad. And he was sad because he was extremely rich. So this man, what did he do? He did a quick cost-benefit analysis, and Jesus' offer was found wanting. It wasn't worth it to him. 
To him, the kingdom wasn't worth that kind of sacrifice. It was too costly, too much loss. And so we should see now that Jesus has exposed the real issue in this guy's heart. It's unbelief and it's idolatry. His faith is somewhere else. Remember, Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. It's not, Jesus didn't say it's unadvisable. He didn't say it's not a good idea. He says you can't. And so this is a worship and a service issue. It's a matter of what God you're trusting in, what God you're worshiping and serving, where your heart is. This man had another God before God, and he didn't see it. He thought he had kept the commandments. He was blind to his unbelief. He was blind to his idolatry. He really needed his eyes opened to reality. He needed to become like a little child and realize that he was in great need. He needed to see that he was helpless and powerless and completely dependent, that he was a spiritual beggar. He needed to see that, that he was in great need to receive mercy and grace, that there was nothing he could do to inherit the kingdom, but there was a kingdom to receive as a gift, like a helpless little child. So he lacked the one thing because his hands were too full to receive it. Okay, so Jesus said, drop everything so I can put real treasure in your hands. I want to put real treasure in your hands. Would you trust me? You you need to drop those things so that you can hold this. If you're going to receive this gift, you'll have to empty your hands. There's too much in your hands. Your moral record and your money are in your hands. That's what you're trusting in. I've kept these from my youth. I'm sad. Bad news because I'm extremely rich. So he was trusting in those things, treasuring those things instead of the gift of the kingdom and the treasures of the kingdom. You know, there is another man that Jesus spoke of that is the opposite of this man, kind of the polar opposite of this man. A similar situation, there are differences to be sure, but similar situation, and yet he responded not with sadness, but with joy. Okay, Matthew 13, 44. Know this passage probably. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Think about these two. Lay them side by side and and compare them, okay? This guy sold everything. He had to sell everything. He had to liquidate his estate to buy that field. Jesus told the rich ruler to sell everything. There was a treasure in that field. Jesus told the rich young ruler that he would have treasure in heaven. This guy, in his joy, he is skipping, he is giggling all the way to the pawn shop. He goes and liquidates. Nobody's got a gun to his head. And the rich young ruler hears, and he turns away sad. He didn't see it. He didn't believe it. His cost-benefit analysis was bad because he was blind. If he would have had eyes to see, if he would have been listening to what Jesus said, he would have said, wait a second, are you talking about eternal treasure in heaven? The kind that moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves can't break in and steal? Is that the kind of treasure you're talking about? Because this monopoly money I'm dealing with is so, it, it just can go right through my fingers like sand. Is that what you're talking about? Because if that's what you're talking about, I'm in. He didn't have ears to hear. He didn't have eyes to see. He was blind. He didn't have faith. So the difference is new eyes, new ears, a new heart. Okay, think about the Apostle Paul on the, on the Damascus Road, before and after the Damascus Road. Before the Damascus Road. Jesus is not the Christ. He's an imposter. Paul's confidence was in his own righteousness. He's blind to the worth of Christ. He's trying to stamp out the way, okay? And then Jesus stops him, blinds him on the Damascus road, opens the eyes of his art, and then all of a sudden, the world just went like this. 
he starts talking like this. Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me, my moral record, this righteousness, I have the right pedigree, I've got the right zeal, I know the right people, I've got the right ancestry. It's all loss. So whatever things were gained to me before when I was blind, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I continue to count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them. Don't feel sorry for me. Count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ the treasure. And I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I've kept these from my youth. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, it's a gift on the basis of faith. Okay, this isn't bad news. To pour contempt on all your pride, to put no confidence in the flesh, that's not bad news. The gospel is not bad news. It's not a bum deal. It's never a bum deal. You never get the short end of the stick if you're a Christian. It's not a sacrifice. Paul's not asking the Philippians to feel sorry for him. If the Christian life, your Christian life, you following Jesus ever sounds like bad news or feels like a bum deal, what do we need? We need to see again reality. We need to hear the good news again. We need a fresh glimpse of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why the psalmist prays, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Why? Because I'm just spring-loaded to just go after all these lesser things. That's why Paul says, I counted for the sake of Christ. I continue to count. I have to keep dying every day, denying myself, taking my cross, and following Jesus, not because, oh, the drudgery. No, because I, what is wrong with me in my sin? I constantly choose lesser things at the expense of the greater. Oh, how foolish unbelief is. So Lord, have mercy. I need to keep pressing on. Fix my eyes on the goal for the prize. Okay? It's the fight of faith. It's how you enter the kingdom like a child receiving the gift of righteousness, the gift of grace, the gift of mercy. And it's how we live following Jesus <laughs> by faith in the gracious promises of God. <laughs> Paul says, I just thought about this this morning. It's really helpful. And I hope it sticks in my own mind every time I take the garbage out. Um, so, Surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If, if, if it ever feels like, oh, the sacrifice, oh, the drudgery, if we're, we're kind of doing these like stage whisper things or stage size, oh, you know, we want everybody to notice our sacrifice because it's such a hard thing to follow Jesus um, and we're pitting ourselves and we're looking around, must be nice, all that. We need to see the worth of Christ. So Paul says, I continue to count and view the surpassing value of knowing Christ. It's all rubbish. Don't feel sorry for me. Have you ever mourned the day after you, the garbage guy comes? No, really. I mean, yeah, if you accidentally threw something away and, you, oh, you can't get it back, but that's not what I'm talking about. Seriously. Nobody ever mourns that. So this is really sad. There, one of the parallels, Jesus looked at this man and loved him. He's not trying to pin him to the wall. He's trying to love him. To, would you please let go of these things, all this tin and trinkets? I'm trying to give you true treasure. Trust me. So how does Jesus respond to his sadness? Look at verse 24. Jesus looked at him. I love it. Jesus looked him in the eyes. He said a hard thing and he looked him in the eyes. And he said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So how hard is it? Okay, so last week I mentioned that there have been some commentators or preachers who have said that this refers to this small gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. 
Okay, so to fit a camel through, the rider has to dismount, and the camel has got to have its burden removed so that it can creep through humbly. Okay, and if that's the case, how hard is it? Well, it's as hard as humility is hard. And so what I said was, I was using that as an example of how we can, we, we, we need to be, be sure we don't read back anachronistically something into the text that wasn't there in the mind of the author at the original the original hearers and in the author. So there was no such gate in Jerusalem at that time. This interpretation um, surfaced in the 10th or 11th century. Now, one thing I need to say here, um, I woke up regretting the way that I did that last week. Okay? Um, And I want to apologize for the way that I stated those things last week because I basically mocked that interpretation. Okay? And so, woke up Monday morning, oh, I shouldn't have done that. The last thing that I would want to do, especially in light of the fact that earlier in Luke 18, the Pharisee says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. Now, was what I said true? It's an invalid interpretation, certainly. But would I want to embrace or encourage a culture of disparagement and looking down on others with contempt? Like, I thank God that I'm not like one of those pathetic simpleton preachers who don't know the cultural background. So I've repented, and I ask you to forgive me. Um, Here's one of the things that shamed me. I was ashamed of how there could be some preachers, I know there are, who don't have access to a good commentary, and maybe they were told this interpretation by somebody that they trust, and they don't have any reason to doubt its validity. And they could be so much more humbly faithful and fruitful in God's hand than me. So how dare I mock someone like that, okay? So I wasn't mocking any real person, but still, it was something that I regret. So that said, the answer to the question, how hard? It's that it's impossible, okay? Look at Jesus' logic. It is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. Imagine sitting there. Jesus saying how hard it is. It's easier to fit a thousand pound camel that's on the low end, full grown, a thousand pound camel through the eye of a needle. Point? It's impossible. You can't do it. So look at the logic again. It's easier for that to happen than for this to happen, for this guy to go to heaven. That's really sobering. Especially all of us, by world standards, very rich. If, if, if the weight of this really hit us, I think it would scare us if we were just going along we didn't know how it ended so those who heard it they they got it they they responded like you'd expect look at verse 26 they who heard it said then who can be saved but jesus said the things that are impossible with people are possible with god so this guy seemed like such a great candidate look at him He's obviously blessed by God. He's wealthy. He's scrupulous. He's moral. He's upstanding. He's blessed by God. Look at this. Kept the commandments, and he's coming to join our team. This is great. What a great addition. What an asset. He came and asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus calls his bluff, and he turns away sad. Who can be saved? Who has the ability, the power? There's a play on words here. Who can, for whom is this possible? Who has the power to do this? Who can be saved? The ability. And then Jesus says, the things that are impossible, that's that same word with the negative on the front of it, with people are possible. It's possible. God has the power. He has the ability. He can do it. Okay, it's possible with God. So that's good news for rich people like us. How hard is it for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom? Or any person? Remember they said, so who then could be saved, can be saved? Not just wealthy people, but who? If this is the case, it's impossible. It's impossible to enter the kingdom. If God is not in the equation, 
if grace is not in the equation, if mercy is not in the equation, but with God in the equation, it's entirely possible, even with a rich man like this guy, okay, which is why in the very next chapter, a little rich guy named Zacchaeus will become, by God's grace, a little child, and he's going to inherit the kingdom. It's great. So Jesus makes it very clear you can't buy or earn your way in. But faith, new eyes, new ears, new heart can be given even to the wealthy. Remember 1 Corinthians 1. Maybe turn there briefly. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. I love this passage. 1 Corinthians 1. It's on page 1141 if you're using a pew Bible. Pay attention to the language, and then I'll, I'll give you a little illustration that, that uh, stuck with me when I heard it a while ago. For consider your calling, brethren, Paul writing to the Corinthians, the believers in Corinth, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ. By his doing. It's possible with God. All things are possible with God. By his doing, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Fortunately, in God's wisdom and grace, Paul did not say any. He didn't say not any wise according to the flesh. That would mean no university professors would go to heaven. Not many mighty, not many noble. Okay, so Lady Hamilton, this is the little story I heard a while ago, was this evangelical believer among the English nobility in the early part of last century, I believe. She used to say she was saved by an M because it had not said not any mighty or any noble. And if it had, she wouldn't have made it. But the M changed it all and... She was a believer, again, obviously, by God's grace, through Christ alone. But this is why Jesus came, to make the impossible possible. It's the reason for which he died, to save even idolatrous money worshipers like you and me. It's possible. Praise God that it's possible. Salvation is always a gift of grace through faith in Jesus for rich or poor, for any who see the worth of Christ and trust him. So what about us? Verses 28 to 30. Peter said, on behalf of the disciples, to be sure, behold, we've left our own homes. Literally, it's that which is our own. So we've left everything. We've left that which, was, that which is our own and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive, it's a gift from beginning to end, many times as much at this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Peter pipes up and says, well, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. Now, again, we don't know what Peter's tone or motivation was here. Is it prideful? Is it kind of a nervous pleading? Like, um, well, we, we've done what you said. And so is Jesus' answer a, a mild rebuke? Or is it a mild affirmation of the reality of their faith? Well, at least we know that Jesus wants to make it clear that no sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom for his sake, is ultimately a sacrifice. Here's what David Livingston, who lived in the 1800s, maybe you've heard of him, um, he gave his life 
um, to the exploration of Africa for the sake of the access to the gospel. And he said to some Cambridge students about his leaving the benefits of England, he says this, it's kind of a famous quote, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. So, as I even sung this All I Have is Christ song. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, (laughs) that's the way we need to see the world. How costly it would be to turn away sad, to think that this is too great a sacrifice. Not the other way around. And by the way, with what Jesus says to Peter, you won't inherit eternal life because you've left everything. Okay, remember 1 Corinthians 13? You can give away all your money from the wrong motives and still go to hell. Just like this guy won't inherit eternal life by keeping the commandments. If anyone inherits eternal life, if anyone inherits the kingdom, they will inherit it because of Faith in the grace of the Lord Jesus, who, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich in the mercy of God. So consider as we close the wealth of the poor in spirit. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You realize that when you become a Christian, you are adopted into the family of God. God is your father. Your father is the creator and owner of all things, which means you are the heir of all things. Paul says crazy things like this. All things are yours, 1 Corinthians 4. All things are yours. You're a co-heir with Christ. The inheritance that Christ, the Son of God, deserves, that's yours because you're in Him. So, so you can have... You could be destitute on this earth and you are such wealthy poor. In fact, I think it should go the other way around and the noun should be wealthy. Because the poor is just for a moment, just for a vapor. So, the Bible also talks about the reverse. Woe to the rich who need nothing. They are the ones to pity. Those poor, wealthy. They are truly destitute. Okay, so how sad that this man heard the gospel of the kingdom and went away sad. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? We are all in debt by nature, by choice. We are cosmic embezzlers who have used God's gifts. Everything we have is a gift from him. We've used them for our own selfish purposes. That's called embezzlement. And it's on a cosmic scale against an infinitely great king. That's really dangerous. So we deserve eternal debtor's prison. But God, who is rich in mercy... Remember that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. So if we have eyes to see the surpassing worth of Christ and his debt-canceling co-heirs with Christ grace, 
then we will know that we're infinitely wealthy. We will learn the secret of contentment. Whether we have a little or a lot, whether we abound or we're in lack, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us because Christ is our treasure and no one and no thing can take him from us. We have it all, even if we have nothing. So we are the poor wealthy, the happy poor wealthy, giggling all the way to the pawn shop. Don't feel sorry for us, right? We may be poor and weak, but we have Christ and we're heirs of all things. And then we choose. When we know that grace, that grace comes down and fills us and then it, then it, then it pours out through us. Like the Philippians in their poor generosity, we choose to impoverish ourselves by facing further sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of others, laying up treasure in heaven. This is not something to show off or draw attention to us. It's not something for us to feel oh, self-pity or whatever because of all of our sacrifice. No, our treasure's in heaven. We want to lay up more treasure where our heart is. We are poor and we will happily become poorer because we are inestimably rich. We are those who are truly and eternally wealthy. We are the poor wealthy. So all praise to our infinitely rich in mercy God who by his grace sends his son, the Lord Jesus. We know his grace that though he was rich, he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Let's pray and then we're going to sing all I have is Christ and just think Philippians 3. We've counted everything as lost. That's all we have. All I have is Christ. (laughs) But if you have Christ, you have everything. So all I have is Christ is such a happy celebratory exclamation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that Though all we deserve is eternal debtor's prison, by your grace, you've opened our eyes to see the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we have Christ, and if we have Christ, we have everything. I pray that that we would continue to count all things as loss in view of, give us a fresh view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, so that everything fades and pales in comparison. And if there are any in here this morning that think the gospel is bad news, would you please, Father, by your Spirit, open their eyes to see the rich glory of God in the face of Jesus. In his name, amen.